All right, well, this morning I have uh, a sermon with four points, each of which start with E. So if you grew up in a tradition where there were four-point sermons, each of which started with the same letter, you'll feel at home here this morning. Uh, Each begin with the letter E. So um, uh, in true Pentecostal form, I'm going to raise my voice, and it's going to get riled up in here. Um, So if you'd like to preach along with me, I'm just kidding. It's not really going to be like that. Um, I somehow, well, anyway, I just, let's begin. the two verses that we read this morning from Luke chapter 3 are the end of the gospel text. So there, there's more of that gospel text, but just chose to focus on those last two verses. And the topic that we'll talk about this morning is developing a healthy self-understanding. Developing a healthy self-understanding. So just a couple of weeks ago in the lectionary text, we dealt with the passage in Luke, the short passage where... Um, we, the only evidence we get of Jesus as a young person, what he was like, that passage you might recall, Matt led us through uh, Jesus getting separated from his parents, his parents understandably panicking because they have lost the Son of God, and they again find Jesus, and he's with the religious authorities, and he's asking them questions. They're amazed at his knowledge, but that's really the only picture that we get of Jesus before Uh, the text that we get to this morning, which is his baptism. So we don't know much about those intervening years, but there are things, I think, that we can deduce uh, about how Jesus developed his self-understanding. He developed a sense for what his task was, what his God-given mission was. Sometimes we might think, well, of course, he was born the Son of God. He automatically knew all that that would entail, but I, I don't know if that's... I think it's instructive to approach this text from the posture of there were things that Jesus had to discern about what his mission looked like, what his task would look like on earth, and there are things there that, there, that are instructive for us. So whether or not that's the case, I don't know if that's theologically correct, but there are things perhaps that Jesus had to discern about his task, and by looking at how he discerned those things about his task on earth, maybe there are some things that are instructive to us about how we can discern our task, our mission as followers of Jesus. Does that make sense, how I've set that up? So the topic, again, developing a healthy self-understanding, or we might say discerning our God-given task. So how does Jesus discern his God-given task? How does Jesus' self-understanding take shape? And how does this become instructive for us to develop a healthy self-understanding? First... He, as we read in the gospel text, he enters the waters of baptism. He enters the waters of baptism. So in Luke 3.21, as we just read, one day the crowds were being baptized and Jesus himself was baptized. Now this might strike us as a little bit funny. John came with a baptism for repentance of sins. We know, of course, that Jesus was without sin. So why does he enter the waters of baptism? I, I love in situations where I'm sort of lost to look back at what early um, uh, interpreters of scriptures, church fathers, did with these texts. And I found uh, from Maximus of Turin, who was a Christian bishop living in the 4th and 5th centuries, he says, what sort of baptism is this when the one who is dipped is purer than the font? What sort of baptism is this of the Savior, I ask, in which the streams are made pure more than they purify? He goes on to say this, he says, yet 
the Savior willed to be baptized for this reason. Not that he might cleanse himself, but that he might cleanse the waters for our sake. I love that. Love that image. That he might cleanse the waters for our sake. We also have the Spirit descending, Luke says, in bodily form, the form of a dove. And St. Ambrose of Milan, also a 4th century church father, says uh, he sees the image of the dove and he looks back to the descent of the dove when the floodwaters recede in the story of Noah. So if you let your mind think back to that. And he says, in the midst of the floods of the world, looking at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit, here descending in the form of a dove, brings peace to the church. Really interesting ways of looking at this, at this baptism of Jesus. So by entering the waters of baptism, it's the first E, entering the waters of baptism, Jesus establishes a pattern for us. So baptism, as you might know, is a, a public declaration that we are part of God's family. So here, Jesus' relationship to God is reinforced, and Jesus' relationship to God's own people is reinforced. The same is true for us as we enter into the waters of baptism. We're making a public declaration that we're joining Jesus in his mission we'll find out, to establish justice on the earth. So we're being called to join him in the waters of baptism. Baptism is a public testimony to the death of our old self and our new life in Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. Or to put it another way, it's death, for our purposes this morning, death to an unhealthy self-understanding, and birth, the birth of a new self-understanding in light of God's grace and his mercy. It's a paradigm of the Christian life that death, specifically death to self, brings forth new life. This is the pattern that Jesus establishes for us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. You could say amen to that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul also says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this familiar passage, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Christ's baptism is a sign that marks the beginning of his ministry, that he comes to make a way through death to new life. His baptism is, among other things, we could perhaps unpack this all morning, a picture of where the redemptive story is headed. When we're baptized, we're declaring our participation in that story, that life springs forth from death. The second way that Jesus discerns his God-given identity is through prayer, we see in this text. It is, for the sake of my ease, encountering God. So first is entering the waters of baptism, second, encountering God. So in this second part of verse 21 in Luke chapter 3, Luke says, as he was praying, the heavens opened. As he was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. And this is maybe instructive for us in a less straightforward way. I don't know if in your prayer time you've experienced anything like 
what Jesus experiences at his baptism. Probably not, right? This is unique to Jesus, but at the same time, I do think this is instructive that we, through prayer, can discern our task by listening for the voice of God. Still believe that God speaks and can speak to our situation and can help form the way that we discern our task and our mission in this world. Disciplined, listening prayer has the potential to jar us out of autopilot. You may have heard me share this before, but in our uh, Wednesday prayer service, usually uh, we have a, a time of silence that follows our, our time of intercession. And usually during that time of silence, I am uh, not, not very pious, we might say. I, my thinking first goes to, when it's silent here, how loud the ticking of that clock on the back wall is. I spend a few seconds thinking about how loud that ticking is, and then my mind kind of resumes its cycle of, uh, here are all of the tasks that I have to accomplish. The swirl of what's going on um, when silence comes tells me a lot about what my autopilot is, what my kind of default setting is. And it takes discipline to listen. It's more than just silence. It's really a disciplined listening that's required of us in prayer if we are to discern God's voice. If we're just silent, we're kind of just left with our own voice ricocheting around in our brains. Maybe you can relate. Silence is not enough. There's sort of a disciplined listening in prayer that I think Jesus demonstrates for us here as he hears the voice of God. He's open not only in silence, but to hear the voice of God and to let him direct him on mission. The Christian life requires intentionality. I heard somebody say this week, as Christians, we just can't afford to be on autopilot. These experiences of God speaking and influencing Jesus' self-understanding aren't one and done. So Jesus' baptism isn't the only time he hears these words from God. We see in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 29, and we'll skip down to verse 35 in a moment, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. He took them up on a mountain to pray, we read in Luke 9, 28. And he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Again, maybe we can't relate to this in our own prayer lives, but I think this is instructive in a different way. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is familiar, having just read Luke chapter 3, 22, the voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The biblical theologian Luke Timothy Johnson sums up these two instances of God speaking to Jesus by saying, Jesus' true identity, spoke it to him privately while in prayer at his baptism, is here declared to his closest followers. He goes on to say, true identity is revealed in the presence of God. True identity is revealed in the presence of God. So maybe our clothes don't turn dazzling white, we don't have a dove descending upon us, but I do think this is instructive. True identity is revealed in the presence of God. I think that healthy self-understanding, as we see here, isn't just developed privately, but it's developed alongside others. So a healthy self-understanding comes from experiencing God. We might also say experiencing God alongside others. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, who was present on the Mount of Transfiguration, has this to say. 
He says, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. So he's recounting here in first person this experience that he had alongside Jesus when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from, from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is not just Jesus experiencing this privately in prayer, but he's experiencing it alongside others. So I think what's instructive here about this re-emphasis of Jesus' identity in the presence of others is that it reminds us that a healthy self-understanding is formed in God's presence and reinforced in Christian community. Author and pastor Aaron Nequist uh, read recently that he was sort of recounting a, a difficult time for his family, a difficult season. And he says that during that season of difficulty, he realized that his personal quiet time became counterproductive. He said, at first, it was helpful to name my truest identity in God's presence, to name my truest reality there. But after a while, returning to what he calls my tear-soaked prayer journal didn't help. So maybe you found this to be true. He goes on to say, like lifting a bandage to check a wound, my quiet time became a barrier to healing. Anybody experienced that, where you're just sort of recounting your own anxieties by yourself and your personal quiet time, and nothing really seems to change? In fact, your personal quiet time can maybe even, as Nequist says, become a barrier to your own healing. I think it's instructive that we experience God not only personally, privately, but alongside others. There's real transformation that can take place there. Moving toward a healthy self-understanding isn't just a prayer closet, me and God issue. I need Hillary, my wife, to help refine my self-understanding as somebody who's loved. By the way, if you think about it, pray for Hillary. She's been sick for like six weeks, and this morning was a bit of a disaster. I shut Jack's finger in the dishwasher, and now... Some of you are just really angry with me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize to Jack. He's okay. He's here. But if you think about it, pray for Hillary. Uh, she's been sick for quite a while. There's tremendous value in having Hillary's perspective on things. It's easy to get trapped in a certain way of thinking about ourselves that might not align with what's true about us, with what's true about what God says about us. So we need those closest to us to sort of re-narrate our reality in a way that's faithful to what God says about us. Does that make sense? It's important to be open to hearing from God. I have, uh, I have the word but in my notes, but I'm going to change it to and. It's important to be open to hearing from God, and sometimes the way we hear from God is through others. Maybe you can think of a time when you've heard the voice of God through another that's really sort of maybe even changed your trajectory, not just lifted your countenance, but moved you on to, to new things in, in your Christian walk. Sometimes the way we hear from God is through the voice of another who we love and trust, who knows what God has said about our identity. I would encourage you this morning to lean into those relationships. 
So how does Jesus discern his God-given task? How does he develop a self, healthy self-understanding? How does that take shape? First, he enters the waters of baptism. Second, he encounters God. You could say encounters God personally and alongside others. And thirdly, he enacts scripture. He enacts scripture. So to develop a healthy self-understanding, we need the script. We need to be recruited into the drama of scripture. So scripture is not just a, a set of instructions for daily living, although it, it, it is that, but it's also a living story that we're invited into, we're invited to participate in. So we might approach scripture that way. So return to, to God's words to Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. He says, again, my dearly loved son with whom I'm well pleased. And this is the same voice that spoke through the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the, the servant figure in Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, God speaking through the prophet says, Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. Does this sound familiar? So the words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah are also the words of God spoken over Jesus at his baptism. So it not only, these words not only commission Jesus forward, but they also point him backward to the prophet Isaiah and to this overarching story of God's redemption plan. The Bible is not just do's and don'ts, but it's really a story to be immersed in, to get caught up in. It's a redemptive plan to join. So here's what follows in Isaiah 42. If Jesus, we can assume, picked up on these echoes of Isaiah, he would read on and, sit and read this. He will bring justice to the nations. So think about Jesus discerning his task. His self-understanding is being shaped by these verses. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Or we might say, uh, those most in need of justice won't be overlooked in Jesus' ministry or the ministry of this servant here in Isaiah 42. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails through the earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. Likewise, we jump back to Luke chapter 9, this Mount of Transfiguration experiences. Those experience, those who accompanied Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration were prompted to look back at Scripture because it points to Jesus. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter, immediately following the passage that we just read in 2 Peter. He says, because of that experience, that experience of hearing God say to Jesus, this is my chosen one, listen to him. He says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. What an interesting thing to say. You'd almost expect him to say something like, uh, we have greater confidence in Jesus. And of course, he is saying that, but he's saying that via looking back to the scripture, giving greater confidence in the words that the prophets spoke about Jesus. So he's able to discern what's true about Jesus by looking back to the prophets. This experience on the mount look, makes him look back, not just alongside him to Jesus, but to look back to the prophets. What clues are there? Peter knows also that he has a part to play in this unfolding drama. 
and he gains an insight into what that looks like by looking back at what the prophets have to say. So Jesus has been baptized, he's heard God speak to his identity, and in light of what he's experienced, he's gone back to scripture, to the prophets, to flesh out what his task is. And God's word to the prophet Isaiah shapes Jesus' understanding of his task. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 21, we read a little further on, beyond the baptism, this is where Jesus is really launching his public ministry. When Jesus returned to Galilee, we read, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home. He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. He says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing today. So Jesus, at his baptism, really is pointed back to, through the words of God, to Isaiah 42. And we can assume then that he reads forward and he picks these passages that describe the servant, applies them to himself. You can see his self-understanding being shaped by the words of God spoken over him at his baptism and also the words of God spoken through the prophet. He comes to see this as his identity. He's pointed not only forward in his mission, but backward to the words of the prophets. Jesus understands his task according to what God spoke through Isaiah. I like uh, this commentary that Ben Witherington III, uh, that's a name for you, uh, did on Isaiah. He says, describing this passage in Isaiah 4, really the, the the knowledge that was required, the immersion in the scriptures that was required for Jesus to do what he did uh, that day in the synagogue. He says this, notice that Jesus does not pick the scroll from which he will read, he is simply handed the Isaiah scroll. So he gets up to do the reading, he's handed the Isaiah scroll. Jesus must search out and find the text he wishes to read from. So you can imagine this scroll that he has to unroll. He has to find the text that he wants to read. He's given the scroll of Isaiah, which Isaiah is huge. It's, it's sprawling. So he could just you know, open it up and point to whatever, and it could be you know, the Lord will crush the Edomites. And, uh, but no, he, he knows what he's looking for. He searches out. He finds the text he wishes to read from. Witherington says, There were no chapter and verse markings in such first century scrolls. And this is kind of the crazy part. Indeed, there was seldom much separation between words or sentences in them. So this scroll, it's just a series of characters, basically. He's handed this scroll, and he has to locate what he's going to read. This is the inauguration of his earthly ministry. He's given the scroll, and how, how many of us would know what to do in a situation like that? But I think this speaks to Jesus' immersion in the scriptures and the fact that he really was brought back to the prophets to discern his God-given identity. In the same way, I think we hear the voice of God 
that's possible. But there's so much that's already revealed in the scriptures about what we're to do, where we're to go, who we're to be with, how we're to treat one another. That's already there. That's already there. So a big part of discerning our self-understanding to develop a healthy self-understanding is already revealed in God's written word. If you didn't have reason enough to like Jesus already, if any of you uh, did sword drills in the tradition you were raised in, somebody calls out a scripture verse and you have to rifle through your Bible and find it, stand up and read the text. That is, this is like a sword drill on steroids here that Jesus does. When God speaks and further reveals Jesus' identity, God is also prompting Jesus to look back, to look back at the scriptures. And if we're going to follow Jesus and do it faithfully, our self-understanding is shaped not just by scripture, this is, our self-understanding is shaped not just by scripture, but by Jesus' interpretation of scripture. That sink in for a moment. All of the scriptures that Jesus could have read about himself, his self-understanding, and he chooses this one. This is one that should also stick out to us. I'll read it one more time. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. If we're to follow Jesus faithfully, this text has to shape the way that we think about our task as followers of Jesus. Finally, this is the fourth E, as Jesus' self-understanding develops, he takes up this mission and passes it on to us so that as we mature as followers of Christ, this task is to shape our self-understanding. So fourthly, he engages others. He shows us that we need one another. So jumping again forward to the next events in Luke's uh, account of Jesus' early ministry, Luke chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. It's the calling of the disciples. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed that two empty boats were at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and, and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And as the story goes, they catch so many fish that the nets begin to tear, their boat almost sinks. Jesus miraculously gives them an abundance of fish. And when Simon Peter, verse 8, realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, O oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Notice that these are the three who will accompany Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. 
So here we see a picture of Jesus helping others discover their God-given task. And musicians, if you want to come as we prepare to close. How do we bestow a healthy self-understanding on one another? I think ultimately the answer is that we can't. That's a pressure that is too great for us. It's really a God-initiated thing. Having a healthy self-understanding, that's God's work. But I do think there are ways that we can offer small changes of perspective for one another. We can perhaps provide a nudge or a way to reframe a situation. So listen here to what Simon Peter says. He says, my boat is empty and I'm exhausted. Jesus says, go deeper, go deeper. Heard somebody say recently that life isn't what happens to me, it's what I tell myself about what happens to me. And again, we need others around us who can re-narrate our experience in a way that is faithful to God and to what he has said about us. Simon Peter says, I'm, I'm empty, I'm on empty. Jesus says, go deeper. And secondly, as those who have been called into God's family, Jesus shows us that we, to, we are to extend the same offer of life-giving relationship to one another. So Simon Peter, here in this passage, says, after he sees this miracle, Lord, leave me alone in my sin. This is too great for me. Leave me alone in my sin. He wants to be left alone, be isolated. And Jesus says, no, come, accompany me. I'll make you fish for people. Draw you into relationship. I won't isolate you. Draw you into relationship. And it's up to us to respond faithfully to that call and to extend that offer to one another. Would you stand with me as we prepare? to receive communion.